All Roger wanted was to live with his dad. After his mother had died, he was placed in foster care. During a visit with his dad, he, his dad told him that they could be a family again, again if the angels win the pennant. So Roger prays one night, God, if there is a God, maybe you could help them win a little? I'd really, really like a family. And then angels show up, and the California angels begin to make some miraculous plays in the outfield beyond any explanation. It's a fictional movie. I'm talking about angels in the outfield. It came out a while ago, 1994, I believe, but still, someday it'll be a classic once it's old enough. But it sure is a neat idea, isn't it? The idea that angels are, are taking over your body so you can do things that you never thought would be humanly possible. Wouldn't it be great if you were carried by an angel to make a miraculous catch? Or if an angel made you swing your bat and hit a home run, a grand slam to win a game? I'd love that. That would be awesome. It's not so great, though, when others try to dictate what you can and cannot do. It's not so great when other people tell you what you can and cannot do with your own body. We've seen that over the last couple of months. The government says when you can and when you can't see your family. Or when the government puts you under house arrest because you've rubbed shoulders with someone who is sick. It's not so great being told what you can and cannot do. It's un-American, isn't it? America is a free country. An Australian PhD noted this. She said that the most fundamental human right for a free society is the right to bodily autonomy. There is no freedom without control of our own bodies. And her point here is geared toward the government mandating what happens to your body. Specifically, she's writing about what goes into your body. In our country, there's a slogan that, we, that is often used to defend our bodily autonomy. The right to do whatever we want to do with our own bodies. And you've heard it before. My body, my choice. It's almost a copyrighted slogan for abortion. You can't hear those phrases, that word, with those words without thinking of an abortion argument. Someone tried using it back in April to protest wearing a mask in Texas. And she was ripped to shreds for stealing that slogan. Because abortion and wearing a mask for a virus is completely different. In the article, she writes, the person who is critiquing this lady's stance, saying, my body, my choice, whether I want to wear a mask or not, they said this, abortion is an entirely personal decision that, and, and this is key, doesn't affect the health of your neighbor. And so the author writing this article makes a distinction here saying a virus is different because you can infect anybody, you can harm your neighbor. But abortion's not so different because you make the choice and it doesn't harm your neighbor. The logic is sound if the baby inside a womb is not a neighbor. If the baby inside a womb is not a human being with its own bodily autonomy. We live in a complicated world today. A world which loves to hold fast to this idea, my body, my choice, only in certain situations. And it only goes so far. In our text this morning, the Bible addresses this mantra as well, this idea of my body, my choice, I get to do whatever I want to do. The Corinthian believers seem to think that they had that freedom as well. That they were able to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. After all, they had received the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. And so now they were saved by grace alone. It doesn't matter what they do. 
However, our bodies are not ours to do whatever we want with. And the choices that we make on a daily basis are not without guidance. I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So read verses 12 through 20, and we hear what the Holy Spirit says through Paul regarding this idea. I invite you to stand again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, reading verses 12 through 20. Again, reading in Jesus' name. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us understanding to what your word says, that you would give us moldable and shapeable hearts. Lord, hearts that are willing to be taught, willing to hear your truth. We pray that you would remove any distractions from us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see Christ through these words today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The city of Corinth was well known for its immorality. There was one temple back in the day that was staffed with a thousand priestesses. There were a thousand of these priestesses who served in this temple. And the way in which they served was prostitution. Sex with a temple prostitute was viewed as worship to the gods. It was a normal, everyday thing. It was common. There wasn't any shame involved with it. There was no cultural taboo. No one thought twice about it. It was simply what you did if you were going to worship. To see how numb people were to it, look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And remember here that 1 Corinthians is written to a bunch of believers, to a gathering of believers in Corinth, to saints that are in Corinth. And hear what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says this, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you. And the immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one whom you, who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul is saying here that there's someone in your midst, in your congregation, who gathers weekly with you and is well accepted, who's sleeping with his father's wife. And they did nothing about it. They did nothing about it because this was common. They did nothing about it because this is how immoral the society was. And so they didn't think two things about it. Life in the congregation continued on as though everything was fine. And that's shocking to us. We would never imagine that happening today. And it ought to be shocking to us. Even in our own callous society today. It's repulsive. The very idea. 
But that's just going to give one example of the kind of immorality and how widespread it was at the time that Paul wrote this letter. Their minds needed to be renewed. They needed to hear God's word. And I'd submit to you today that our minds also need to be renewed. And we need to hear God's word and how it applies to us today. The Corinthians were of the mindset that they could do whatever they wanted to do. That all things were fine. Again, we're saved by grace. It doesn't matter what we do anymore. We're saved by grace. That's all covered by the blood of Christ. You do what you want. And at first glance, it seems that Paul agrees with them. If you look at verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And if you were to just take that verse right there, and if that verse were to be your, your life verse, your life slogan, and completely divorce it from the rest of Scripture, you could think, I can do whatever I want. I'm a Christian. But when you read Scripture, you realize the all that's being mentioned here is qualified. It doesn't simply refer to all things, because there are things in Scripture that God commands that he demands that we do. There are things in Scripture that he prohibits as well, that he condemns, that he says, you are not to do, and we do not have freedom to do those things. And so the all things that are lawful for me here do not simply mean you can disregard God's law and you can disregard what God has called us to do. It's simply referring to the issues of gray areas in Scripture where there is Christian freedom with different things. Here's a silly example, but an example to show you what Christian freedom might look like. I'll ask this question. Is it okay for a Christian to eat a grilled cheese sandwich? Anyone think that that's okay? Nobody. Okay, get some head now. Okay, there's a few people are feeling brave and getting your physical exercise today, raising your hand. It's perfectly fine for a Christian to eat a grilled cheese sandwich. There is no rule in Scripture, no verse in Scripture, no law of Scripture that you can say Christians should not eat grilled cheese sandwiches. Eating a grilled cheese sandwich doesn't make you a Christian, and it doesn't, it's not a sin either. You're free to make that choice yourself. Now I'll put another condition on here. Now let's say you're lactose intolerant. Can a Christian, a lactose intolerant Christian, still eat a grilled cheese sandwich, or is it sinful? You can eat a grilled cheese sandwich. There is no sin involved with it. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable for you. There's an example of that. And you can go down the list of a whole bunch of things that aren't prescribed or condemned in Scripture and ask this thing, is it lawful for me? Can I do this as a Christian? Absolutely, you can. Some things are, are perfectly fine, and some things maybe aren't a great idea, so we should stay away from them. But we're not going to say eating a grilled cheese sandwich is sinful. That's going too far. But the Corinthians here, they had this idea that sex was one of these gray areas. That sex was one of the things that God didn't put conditions on, that anybody could do it whenever they wanted to, however they wanted to, that you had Christian freedom to do it. And that's what the Corinthian society believed as well. Paul writes about various different gray areas in Scripture in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, he refers to eating certain foods and abstaining from certain foods. And in chapter 9, he talks about being married. A Christian is allowed to get married. A Christian is also allowed to not marry. It doesn't make you a Christian, more or less a Christian. And again, these Corinthians thought that sex was the same thing. It's no big deal one way or another if or if you don't do it. Does that sound familiar? Because our culture says the exact same thing. 
I was watching, uh, flipping through Netflix last night, and I came across a show about a 14-year-old whose goal for that school year was to have sex. A 14-year-old. And that's common in TV shows. You don't have to watch TV shows for very long to see how, cul- how culture is shaping our view of sex and how culture is saying it's perfectly fine. Go for it. Kids will just be kids. Do it. Experience it. Have fun. Have no regrets. But Paul explains here in this text why this is not an area of Christian freedom. And he explains why our body is not our own. We like to think that we can do whatever we'd like to do with our bodies. After all, they're only temporary, right? They're only here for a little amount of time. Someday we'll die and they'll decompose and that'll be it. That'll be the end of of our bodily existence. But what does the word of God say about that? Verses 12 through 14 says, Paul writes this, Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Paul is saying here that that food is temporary. It's, It's for the stomach, and the stomach goes to serve the body. Their functions are temporary, dealing with this temporary life. And unless the Lord comes back, our bodies will one day stop working. But God will not be done with our bodies then. They will decompose, they will decay, But God has promised a bodily resurrection again. He plans to raise them up again in the resurrection of the dead. Just as he raised the Lord's body up from the grave imperishable, our bodies too will also be raised imperishable. They will be changed and they will be glorified. But they will still be our bodies. Our bodies matter. They aren't merely temporary shells that we discard like hermit crabs and we move on to the next one when we're done. They are part of the creation that God is in the process of redeeming. They are created for more than just this life. Paul continues to describe why our bodies matter here in this text. He says, not only are they for the Lord, but they are members of Christ. As Paul says in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. In a mystical, spiritual, physical reality, God has joined our bodies to Christ. And the body of Christ is made up of believers. And so as you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet. In verses 9 and 10, Paul describes unrighteous behavior that will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then in verse 11, he changes his course to say that this, these are what you were. These things in verses 9 and 10, this is old nature stuff. This is what you were before you were saved. But something happened in verse 11 to change the course of what you were. And he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. And we could break down each one of these verbs and their significance. And that's probably for another sermon, another time, another day. But suffice it to say that God has done a work in your life if you are a believer. And so we are no longer what we were. We are different. We've been cleansed. We're set apart. We've been credited with Christ's righteousness. We are Christ's hands and feet, the body of Christ. 
And so we are not to return to the filth from which we've been delivered. We're members of Christ, cleansed, pure, spotless, and holy. Paul goes on to say in verses 19 through 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Paul says, writes this, don't you know? In the way that he says it, he's, he says, of course, you already know this. You know that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ is dwelling in you, the Spirit dwells in you. This isn't what Christians should be doing or participating in. And Paul says that you are not your own. You're not your own to make whatever decisions you want to do, but instead you were bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of the unblemished and spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So our bodies belong to him. We're united to him. In other words, we don't have the right to do whatever we want to do with our bodies. We can't just decide to do whatever feels good or whatever feels right. Because again, it's not all good. It's not all beneficial. And it's not all pure. We do what Christ calls us to do. And we live how Christ tells us to live. Hear what the Lord says through Paul in verse 17 says that the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And this is why believers aren't to join themselves to prostitutes, because it establishes a one flesh union that's in opposition to that one spirit union with the Lord. And we can pause here for a second, and I can ask this question, what harm is there in soliciting a prostitute? What does Paul say in the text? Does he say it's an unwise financial decision to make? Does he say don't do it because you might get an STD and that's probably not going to bode well for you? Those aren't the reasons that Paul gives, even though Paul certainly could have said those reasons. But he goes to a more important reason. The problem that Scripture points to is a flesh versus spirit issue. And with that in mind, I think this prohibition extends beyond just prostitution. Because I would venture to guess that most of us here have not ever solicited the services of a prostitute before. That's still uh, culturally a taboo for most of us, for, pretty, for most of society as well. But I think this prohibition extends to any sexual relation apart from your spouse. Culture will say, my body, my choice. Culture will say, as long as it's consensual between two consenting adults, it's fine to do it. Or culture will say, kids will be kids, it's just what kids do. What do you, else do you expect high schoolers and middle schoolers to do? To the extent that virginity is viewed as a shameful thing. But look at the text, though. What's the problem that Paul points to with uniting yourself with the prostitute? It's that it creates a one flesh union that is in opposition to Christ. It's taking that which is joined to the Lord and that which is pure and holy to that which has been washed, sanctified, and justified, and it joins it again to the old nature stuff from which it's already been cleansed. Going back to verses 9 through 11, you've been bought with a price. You aren't your own. The body isn't for immorality, but instead for the Lord. Don't go back to these sinful vices again. You've been set free. You've been cleansed. You've been redeemed. If your body isn't your own, then the question comes, do we still have a choice? And the simple answer is yes. 
but also no. You have a choice to make, but only one choice is right. Only one choice is God-honoring. Only one choice is what the Spirit would guide you to do, to make. In verses 18 and 20, Paul gives us the choice to make. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The cultural trend the Corinthians had of sex with whomever, whenever, was contrary to God's law. Having been washed, having been sanctified, having been justified, they'd been set free from sin. They didn't have to go back to their old ways. And indeed, they shouldn't go back to their old ways. This is why Paul is writing this letter, reminding them that you've been set free to glorify God. And that's done by fleeing immorality, not tampering with it, not seeing how close to the line you can get without crossing over it, but fleeing immorality here. Not allowing yourself to be mastered by sin, but remembering again that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your body matters, and what you do with your body also matters. You are no longer unrighteous, but counted righteous for the sake of Christ. Perhaps that hasn't been your go-to choice throughout your life, fleeing immorality. And there's a good chance that when given the choice between glorifying God with our bodies and gratifying the desires of our flesh, doing what, what we want to do, all too often we choose to do the latter. And I'm not just talking about sex anymore. Anything that you want to do in your own flesh, in your old nature, in your own body, that goes against what God has called you to do, what God has clearly called you to do, more often than not, we choose to do what we want to do. And all too often, we convince ourselves that missing out on momentary pleasure is too high a price to pay when we're called to glorify God. That missing out on momentary pleasure, missing out on doing what I want to do is more important or a greater price to pay than the price of unfaithfulness to God. We'd rather be our own boss. We'd rather give in to our own sinful desires and all too often we choose poorly and we choose to sin against God. Anytime we refuse to glorify God in our body, when given the choice to obey God and we do what we want to do instead, it's the wrong choice and it's sin. It's not what God has called us to do. It's not what we've been called to be. It's here that we have another choice to make. After you've given yourself over into sin, do you continue on in that sin and say, well, it's too late, might as well live it up now? Or do you repent and turn back to the Lord? It's important to once again return to that foundational and historic truth of what Christ has done. To see ourselves not as the unrighteous people that our actions declare us to be but to see us who we are in Christ Jesus, to see what Christ has done, to see that little phrase in verse 13, which Paul says, the Lord is for the body. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians 15, and we see how exactly the Lord is for the body. We see what the Lord has done for our own bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes this. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the rest of the chapter explains the significance of what Christ did and the glorifying of our bodies. 
that our bodies are, are not the end. But Christ is going to raise up our bodies once again, imperishable, never to go into sin again. But in this life, that's not our experience, is it? But this is the promise of God that God has promised us. That God has promised to, to you. And the chapter ends with these words. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable. And thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not by your own willingness to stay away from sin. We're going to continue to struggle with that every day of our lives. But our victory is found in Jesus Christ, the Lord who is for the body, the Lord who is crucified, dead, and was buried for you to pay for your sin. That Lord who washes you, who justifies you, who has sanctified you through his blood, the one who has called you to be his own. And so Paul encourages the believers here, be steadfast and immovable. Continue on in this fight, abounding in the work of the Lord always, because your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This has been promised to you. This is the goal that we are working towards, but this is the goal that we will receive as we continue in a life of repentance and faith. So when you stumble and when you fall, not if, but when, and when you give in to the desires of your flesh and you sin against God, confess your sin to him and take heart that your toil is not in vain. And take heart again that the Lord is for the body and what Christ has done to redeem you of your sin, that he has paid the price for that sin and he has forgiven you as far as the east is from the west. And remember again the one who washes, the one who sanctifies, the one who justifies, the one who has shed his blood to redeem you, past tense, and continue on in your work for the Lord. Assured that by his grace, you are no longer what you were, but you have been redeemed, and your body is no longer your own, but glorify God in your body with the choices that you make. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you again for your word. Lord, we thank you that these bodies aren't just temporary shells that we have, but you are even redeeming these bodies. The body of this death, Lord, which, which Paul says, which I say, which, which we all say, Lord, who will deliver me from this body of this death, wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who has given us the victory. We praise you, Jesus, that you are redeeming us, that you have redeemed us, that you have guaranteed to us a mysterious hope, Lord, that you are giving to us forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would help us to make choices with our own bodies that honor you, that seek to bring your presence, to make your name known, to make your name great every place where we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.